You're listening to the Grace and Truth Podcast. Today's message comes from a study on the book of Daniel taught at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in Marietta, Texas. I've been asked, are they, do they get thrown in the furnace today? No. No. And there's a reason for that. As soon as I say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the first image that pops into most of your minds is these guys being chunked into the flames, this furnace, and they're brought out and their clothes aren't singed. They don't even smell like smoke. Uh, And we know that. We understand. But remember, when we come to these familiar texts, one of the things we often do that hinders us is we jump right to the part we know. We jump to the part we're comfortable with. We avoid lists. We avoid anything that resembles what we've heard in the past. And in doing so, sometimes we miss small details that really aren't small at all. We've just never looked at it before. And that's the amazing part of God's living word. Then you can read the book of Daniel every day for the rest of your life. And every day, the Holy Spirit that's continually at work will bring something to mind and work in your heart if you're reading it with the right intention. You realize that we read through these books and many of us participate in a daily reading program. But there are parts of the world where people treasure just one book like John because that's all they have. Somehow we often find ourselves not satisfied with the abundance that we have, neglecting what a gift it actually is. So yes, we're in Daniel again. Guess what? Next Sunday we'll be in Daniel. And the next Sunday. And the next Sunday. And if the Lord doesn't tarry the next Sunday, um, we're going to be there feasting on the riches of His Word because in doing so, we feast on the riches of His grace. So here's Neb. He's had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar. That's on your spelling test this week. Nebuchadnezzar. Um, So, here... I didn't mean Chad. (laughs) That's just how you spell it. Uh, In fact, in my notes, week after week, I've gotten tired of writing... Nebuchadnezzar. So it's just Neb in all my notes, uh, that shorthand. He's had a dream in chapter 2, and it's one we know. We looked at the substance of it. We looked at the interpretation, how Daniel brought it, how God provided it. And in that provision, Daniel proclaims who God is. When we get to chapter 2, verse 1, we see that this dream has shaken him to his core. Remember, it's that picture of Bugs Bunny walking up behind Daffy Duck with cymbals and crashing them on his head, and he's just shaken at the very core of who he is. Can't even stand up straight or control himself. And not only that, but now he's losing sleep. But in that dream, it wasn't the statue. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar knew about statues. He knew about idols. He knew about massive construction projects as we look back through history. It wasn't the statue that shook him. It's what happened to it. It's what happened to the image that this massive thing, whatever he saw, was able to be demolished to basically dust by a rock not formed from human hands. If we want to look at an Old Testament picture of this just to give you an idea, imagine the mighty Goliath falling because a little stone hits him in the head. 
This is the same picture that rocks Nebuchadnezzar. And it's the fact that that image is dissolved by something that seems so insignificant. And he doesn't relate that he's disturbed by something so insignificant as a dream. But it just shatters everything. This foreign stone turned the metal that was the strongest and the metal that was most valuable into worthlessness. Now that dream, we know looking back and from last week who that represents and what that is. It is Christ in his kingdom that establishes by the stone that, that was established by the stone that the builders rejected. It was the truth of the stone, the rock on which he would build his church. And when we look through chapter 2, we know that it's twofold. The thing that Nebuchadnezzar is seeing in the dream and the interpretation that Daniel brings, it's twofold because one, we see the rock come and grow. Two, we see it last forever. There is a beginning, a growth, and a finality to that interpretation and what we see in the dream. So that means as we read chapter 2, this side of the cross, experiencing God's grace here now today, we see that what Daniel wrote in chapter 2 was fulfilled, but what we also see is that it's going to be fulfilled. What we experience in the growth of the gospel and the establishment of the church that continues now, there will be a day when all other kingdoms of this earth are wiped away. And that mountain, the rock, the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel message stands forever. Now, if we look at it, Nebuchadnezzar has seen a foreshadowing or a picture of Christ. He's had a taste of what we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. About, but those were all the faithful people, right? Abraham, Isaac. Then the list of judges and saints that went on from there. In 11.13 and then 11.39 through 40, we see they got a taste of what was to come, but the taste that they received increased their faith. And faith was given to them produced in them. And it says that what they saw pointed to what was to come and they believed it. But what about Nebuchadnezzar? Abraham saw the promise of God of what was to come and had faith and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that's interpreted by a man of God. But is that same act of faith present? Look in your Bibles at chapter 2, verse 47. Chapter 2, verse 47. This is what he says, Truly your God is a God of gods, and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now that your and you in that verse we read is Daniel. And we read that after that the king gave high honors to Daniel and paid homage offering and incense set before him. Now, when we get to this morning in chapter 3, we need to remember where we just left off. Now, we don't have a time frame. We know that Nebuchadnezzar has made this strange statement, made this profession from his mouth, and when we get to chapter 3, when exactly it is in relation to the end of chapter 2, well, we just don't know. Some of our Greek text says that it happens in the 18th year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, if that's the case. There's been many years that's passed since then. But what can we know? 
we don't know any of that for certain, well, there's a few things. One, we know that it happens later. Therefore, Daniel is known by Nebuchadnezzar. And the truth of the matter is the three Jewish katirs are known by Nebuchadnezzar as well. These three faithful that are with him know him. They've been in front of the king, and they are known by the king. We know that Daniel has proved his faith, Daniel's faith in God, to Nebuchadnezzar to the point that Nebuchadnezzar has made some type of verbal acknowledgement that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Daniel, the God that gave him the dream that set up his kingdom as it is, is a God. But in his statement, we don't know that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges him as the God. We know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are high in rank. They've been put over the affairs of Babylon at the end, and so when we read about the influential people in the kingdom, those three are going to be a part of it. And don't forget, Daniel's still in the court. He didn't keep him out. After all, this man that revealed the mystery of mysteries to Nebuchadnezzar, who had requested this mystery to be revealed eight times in chapter 2, if the man has that kind of connection, there's no way a king's going to let him out of his sight. Because no other collection of wise men or scholars in the kingdom of Babylon was able to do what Daniel was able to do. Not only has Nebuchadnezzar experienced the faith of Daniel the faith that Daniel has in his God. But Nebuchadnezzar has also experienced the power of, Neb- of Daniel's God. Now this, is the, this would be the perfect setting for a conversion moment. The apologetic work has been done. The seed has been sown. Surely this king that has experienced all other gods across other nations, raised worshiping Marduk and other idols, surely what's happened in chapter 2 is enough to change Nebuchadnezzar's heart. I want you to understand something this morning. Information will never change your heart. I wish it could. But look at our culture. If information could change your hearts, the efforts of the schools to curb the revolution that we see now would not have happened. When we dealt with cultural improprieties, we just said, well, let's teach them that it's wrong. But the knowledge didn't change the heart. Nebuchadnezzar has a knowledge. He's even had an experience. Let me tell you, experiences aren't going to change your heart. How many of you have ever messed up and landed in the doghouse? Not from your spouse, but just something bad happened. And how many of you two years later found yourself doing the same exact thing again? Experiences are not going to change your heart. If knowledge isn't going to change your heart and experiences are not going to change your heart, then that means it has to be someone that does it. And hopefully we see that coming into chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar has had knowledge and he has an experience. But what we see is his heart doesn't change. 
If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to read the first seven verses. Again, they don't get burnt today. They don't get burnt next week. They don't get burnt the next week because God's with them. So let's stand together this morning. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth six, breadth, six cubits. He laid it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the perfects, prefects, sorry, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Father, thank you for your word. Now please use it in our lives to fulfill your purpose. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, for those of you that read chapter 3 this week, I hope you were asking questions. And the first question should have been, what happened? Here he is coming out of chapter 2, and it takes us less than a minute to travel from one chapter to the next to see his profession that comes out of his mouth to all of a sudden he's setting up this golden image. What in the world happened? There were other questions maybe as you read chapter 3. You asked, where in the world did Daniel go? Daniel's a right-hand man, and all of a sudden we get to chapter 3, and he's nowhere on the scene. The other thing we notice is that if you read through chapter 3, all of a sudden the Jewish names of the three are gone, and they're replaced with the Babylonian names. As they are promoted within the ranks of the Babylonian Empire, it's, it's almost to foreshadow that they are no longer a part of their former life, their former identity. There's something new taking place in them right now. So where are they? What happened? What's taken place? Remember, we only have about nine days of Daniel's life in this book. Which means we're going to have more questions than answers. But before we try to decide what happened, we need to look just at the text and say, okay, what's here? What do we see? Well, the first thing you need to know is this is a big old statue. Everybody read that and thought, what's a cubit? And so everybody does the same thing. They go down to their footnotes and they say, okay, it's about 18 inches. And even then, if you read other places, it's probably a little bit different than that. But ballpark figure is 18 inches, which means this statue is 90 feet tall. 
Now, in good old Cass County, Texas, that's hard for us to imagine. The closest thing we have to it, the most recognizable image in Cass County, is that old water tower in Linden, Texas. The sacred, okay. (laughs) An image, okay. We're looking at about 130 feet tall, that water tower that when you come into town from almost every point, you can see it. And so if we just really want to picture that in our mind, what we can safely say is if you look at that water tower and you know that place that every little kid has dreamed walking around, that little platform that's around and some of you have mischievously snuck up to, from there down, we're looking at an approximate height, about nine feet wide. It's safe to say this towered every other object. When that music sounded, there was no doubt that they would know where to turn, where to look, just like if I were to go into Linden, Texas, anybody that's lived there for a few years or even one year and said, where's the water tower? They'd say, it's right over there. This is big. It says it's gold. We don't know if it's pure gold or if it's just a gold overlay, but we can't neglect the fact that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, his kingdom was the head of gold. It doesn't tell us that this image is Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know who it is. We don't know what it looks like. We just know that it is shiny. We know that it's expensive. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar has brought everybody together the officials of the land, to worship this image. So here we are. We also know that he set it up. Did you see that over and over again when we read? The image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, that set up, that set up. That's the same language that we see previously in chapter 2. Except there, God set up. Do you see the language in the text? No matter whether or not the image is Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is making a statement, a statement of who he is and the power he has. After all, he's already heard from God's man beginning in 36 that he is something unique, even in the generations of kings to come afterwards. That God has established him in a way that is not going to be established in the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. His reign's unique. A statue that resembles the dream. A person setting it up just as God is going to set something up. Why? Well, we see two things. The first thing we see about this image is it was made for worship. It, it wasn't like the serpent on the stick in the days of Moses that people began to worship. Nebuchadnezzar made this object for the specific purpose of worship. Look in verse 4. When they hear that, they're supposed to bow down. It's not an option. It's not if you want to. It's that when you hear this sound, you are to worship. You are to recognize 
this thing as some type of deity. There's something else we see, though. It's not just that it's meant to worship, but it was intended for some type of national solidarity. It was intended to bring people, and look at the language in verse 4, from peoples and nations and languages. Now, if we go back to chapter 1 and we see what happened with Judah during the Babylonian exile, he brought the brightest, the best, those without blemish, into the kingdom. He put them in training in order to assimilate them and bring them in that they would be like-minded. And we look at the history of the Babylonian kingdom, we understand that Judah was not unique in that. It wasn't as if Nebuchadnezzar just came up and said, hey, I'm not going to do that to anybody else. I'm just going to do it to Judah. So when he says to assemble the officials of the land, these are people, nations, and languages that have been appointed because Nebuchadnezzar, or either his father, has caught them and brought them in as captives to be assimilated into a culture. And this image that's set up is to centralize this deified object is supposed to represent you're all on board with me. Remember, that was the point of the education from chapter 1. That's the reason that they were brought together to train them in the language and literature and the customs of the Babylonians so that they would see this is better. And here's Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3, even after the dream he's had, whenever it happened in a time frame compared to this, here he is, saying it's time for the final exam. You peoples, you nations, you languages, you have been brought into this kingdom. And now it's time for you to pledge your allegiance to this kingdom above anything else. And here's how you're going to do it. When you hear the music sound, you're supposed to bow the knee. When you hear the music sound, you're to bow down and worship an object almost as tall as the water tower in Linden, Texas. And everybody's going to know it. Everybody's going to keep watch. We don't know what the statue looked like, but we know what it represented. We don't know the ins and outs of its construction, but we know what that moment, what those moments of the music sounding, and if you've ever traveled to an Islamic country and you've heard the call to prayer, you can imagine something very similar right now. That every time they heard that, and in this initial inauguration, this inauguration of what's happening, it would come to define their daily lives and their daily activities. Because in doing so, they would forsake, no matter the people, no matter the language, no matter the nation they came from, it meant that they were saying, my past is gone, I'm bowing down to my present and future. It, it meant that Maybe I don't have to completely deny my past, but this statue has to be included in my daily ritual. It's more than just a pledge of loyalty. It's a worship 
a deification so that their identity as a Babylonian comes before anything else. And if they don't, it's the fiery furnace. If you're not willing to let let Babylon become your identity, become the thing that unites you, it's the fiery furnace. We read the rest of the story. The music comes, and it says that everybody did it. Everybody gathered, every official, every nation, it says... All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image. And there's that word, that phrase again, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Do you feel the tension between chapter 2 and chapter 3? The words that come out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth in chapter 2 compared to his actions in chapter 3. Somehow, some way, for whatever reason, the words of his mouth don't match up to his actions. Or maybe we're reading too much in to what he says at the end of chapter 2. Maybe it's just an acknowledgement. The most powerful man of the world at that time has said that the God of Daniel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is real. But yet we enter chapter 3 and he demands an idol be worshipped. It's almost the same picture we see as the Israelites stand in front of Mount Sinai and God, the God that freed them from captivity, brought them out of Egypt, is up on top of the mountain in thunder, cloud, and lightning. And they make a golden calf. Being able to see and taste the glory of God, knowing of Him and having an experience, yet the heart not being changed. The problem is not for Nebuchadnezzar whether God, the God of Daniel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that we claim to worship here together this morning, it's not a matter of whether He exists or not. And hear me, it's not even a matter of whether He's to be worshipped or not. The question becomes between chapter 2 and chapter 3 a first commandment issue. Is he the only one? Is he the only one that's to be worshipped? Is there an exclusivity there that the God of Daniel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he demands? See, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't it doesn't comprehend that there should be no greater allegiance. There should be no greater thing, being, object than the God of Daniel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After all, remember that your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings. Revealer of mysteries, 
but still a God of gods. Now, we say that, but you understand that's our issue a lot of times too. Our struggle is not whether God is real. Our our struggle is not lacking knowledge. Our struggle is not even with experiences because we can all list things that have happened. We've seen in our church body God do amazing things with healing and with provision. So it's not knowledge and experience that we're lacking. It's not the belief in God that's the issue for us. Where we struggle is with God being our only God. And now wait a minute. But that's our struggle. See, I don't have any statues in my home. Maybe not. But I guarantee you there are some that sits on the throne of your heart at times. What do you mean? See, Nebuchadnezzar just added God to a list. He just took God and said, I can, I can have God with me and add Him to all this other stuff. I can just set up a statue of Him with all the other statues, even though there's no record of, De- of Nebuchadnezzar ever setting up a statue to God. You, you get the point, though. In all of the lists of gods that Nebuchadnezzar has encountered through the conquests of his father and then his own conquests, it was real easy for him just to say, I've got my life, I've got the things I worship here. Hey, there's a God here. Let me just add him to everything else. Without ever acknowledging his rightful place. When we read Daniel, when we read chapter 2 and chapter 3, I want you to understand something. We are not Daniel, and we are not Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We are Nebuchadnezzar. You say, wait a minute, I'm not that bad. You're right, you're probably worse. Wait a minute, I'm not that bad. Yes, I am. And standing on this side of the cross, knowing the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that surpasses the freedom of captivity from Egypt or the provision during the Babylonian exile, the greatest miracle on earth of a stone heart becoming life, I guarantee you I am worse. Because every time I surrender to the idols of my heart, I trample over the God that I profess to worship with my mouth. And this is what I know. You see what Nebuchadnezzar tries to do here? Verse 4. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, to worship this idol that he set up. It's a good thing we have the rest of the story. Because if we fast forward to Philippians, we read, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, Christ, and bestowed on Him, Christ, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Nebuchadnezzar could not do what God will do through Jesus Christ. But we're stuck between then and now. We're stuck in a world that desires us to bow the knee to that which is inferior to the Creator of all. We're stuck in a community with sin. We're stuck struggling with the sin in our own lives between what we know will happen but where we are right now. And since we're stuck between these two places and we can identify with Nebuchadnezzar and his actions more than we can identify with Daniel, since we're stuck, we have to ask ourselves hard questions. When we leave here after professing to acknowledge God, will we step out the door and bow to the golden idols of our culture? When we leave this morning, will we find our identity in a group of people outside of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Have we pledged our allegiance to something or someone that we hold in greater esteem than the God that redeemed us through Jesus Christ. And we say all that, and it's really easy for us to think those big pictures and not get down to the nitty-gritty. And that's exactly the opposite of, of what we say you ought to do with Scripture. We keep the big picture in mind. The problem is we don't like the nitty-gritty of taking those big general concepts and letting them pierce our hearts. So we have to ask ourselves, who are we bowing down to? You say, well, nobody. That's not true. And the reason I know that's not true is because nobody in here has reached that glorified state yet. Which means that somewhere in your life you are bowing the knee to something or someone that does not deserve that acknowledgement. It may be yourself. You're going to do what you want to do and nobody's going to tell you otherwise. It may be the statement, I'm just me, you need to accept me. No. We love you as an image bearer of Christ, but that does not mean your actions, if they are counter to what God has set forth, should be accepted. It may be your family. It may be your spouse. It could be your kids. You realize that in our culture right now, the kids have more say in the spiritual climate of the household than the parents. Kids are be, to be raised in fear and admonition of the Lord. Not to get to determine what is the fear and admonition of the Lord. Or what are you bowing to? Is it work? Is it pleasure? Or, or maybe it's possessions? 
Maybe it's activities. We can easily and quickly say with the rest of a culture that people don't often miss things for church. They miss church for things. But yet we see that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gathered their strength in a culture that hated them from the fellowship with each other. Where did Daniel run when prayer was needed? To the three. Daniel knew he couldn't do it on his own, but we think we can. This morning, our question is, what are the idols of our heart? What are the excuses we have made for ungodliness in our life? Because all of those things are evidence of bowing the knee to someone or something that does not deserve our worship. Thank you for listening to the Grace and Truth Podcast. We hope your mind has been engaged and your heart has been encouraged by God's Word.